join us. I know you're all joining us before, but I'm just saying this is a really good conversation, a really great series of topics from across the board. So I am really, really super stoked to, um, to explore with you. Okay, so they tell a joke about a priest and a rabbi who are friends. And the priest is always chiding the rabbi. And he's chiding the rabbi this, this evening as well. And he says, Rabbi, when are you going to finally break down and enjoy some pork? And without missing a beat, the rabbi turns to him and says, When? At your wedding. All right, now it's an official joke. We got the rooms. Thank you, Jerry. Um, okay, good. I'm excited to share another why, Jewish Course of Why session with you. We have nine brand new questions. Um, my hope is to get through all of them, but we'll see. The goal is to have a great discussion, a great conversation, and at any point in time, you know, this is meant to be interactive. If you have a question, if you have a comment, if you want to share something, add something, etc., please unmute yourself or drop it into the chat. Either way, I will be paying attention to it, and we can uh, and we can explore it together. All right, so let's begin. What I'm going to do here is I sent you a PDF of tonight's class. Um, I will share my screen, and that way we can all be on the same page. Okay, so lesson four. Here are the nine questions. I'm going to make this a little bit larger so we can all see. Lesson four details the following topics. Number one. Question number one. These are all why questions. Um, oh, and by the way, if you have other questions that we haven't covered yet, please ask, and I'm happy to add on more questions and add on to the discussion. Okay, question number one. Why doesn't Judaism seek converts? Number two, why does, why does the Torah say that the Jews are the chosen people? Isn't that racist? Number three, why do we believe that we have free choice if God always knew how we would choose? Number four, why does, God, why, does, why does the Torah permit slavery? Number five, why does Jewish law obsess over details? Number six, why is it permitted to have sexual relations on Shabbat? I'll explain that question when we get there. Number seven, why does the Bible refer to sexual relations as knowing? Quote, knowing. Um, eight, why aren't vegan foods and restaurants kosher by default? And number nine, why do we say l'chaim as a drinking salutation? So, these are the nine questions. It spans, spans the range Jewish history, Jewish literacy. We talk about halacha, Jewish law, and of course, Jewish custom and, uh, and, yeah, and practice. So, we have philosophy, we have practice, we have l'chaims, everything goes tonight. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm excited to, to study this with you and to explore this with you. Okay, so question number one. Let's put question number one on the table. I'm going to stop sharing so I can speak to you directly. We'll get to the text in a moment. Okay, the first question is, why doesn't Judaism seek converts? Now, you might be wondering if that's indeed the case. I believe we spoke about this maybe even last week. We spoke about the idea of conversion. We spoke about, either last week or the week before, about converting out of the Jewish faith, correct? Remember that conversation? Okay, good. So tonight, we're going to talk about converting into the Jewish faith. Here's the important idea. And I know I mentioned this when we had this conversation, but we're going to elaborate on it right now. Um, when it comes to conversion, 
the Jewish way is to discourage conversion. And the reason is because conversion is considered to be a pretty serious deal. It's not something that's done on a whim or something that ought to be done on a whim. It's something that should be done after a contemplative process. In other words, somebody really wants to convert. Okay. But in general, if somebody says, hey, I'd like to convert, the first step is to dissuade. Um, I think, Ray, you mentioned this last week or the week before. Um, when we talked about converting out of the faith, you mentioned that there's a custom, a Jewish tradition, to discourage a person three times. And that is indeed correct. A person is discouraged uh, several times from converting to Judaism. Not that they're told that they can't, but really their question, like, why would you want to? Right? Do you know what it means? Do you know what Judaism entails? Do you know about it? Are you, are you familiar? Are you aware of how many um, mitzvot we have? Are you familiar with... Um, with all the rules and regulations. So this is, um, this is some of what is told to the, to the potential convert. In addition to the fact that we tell the potential convert, have you looked at the history of the Jewish people? Persecution, um, uh, uh, expulsions. It's never been easy to be a Jew. Why would you want to join this people that is so often targeted, uh, unfortunately, the, 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 uh, the source of, of targeting? These are the things that are used to dissuade somebody from converting. Again, if they really push, if they really want it, then, then you go through the process. But the question is, why doesn't Judaism encourage converts? This is, understand where the question is coming from. Look at any other faith. Look at Judaism, sorry, look at Christianity, look at Islam. They're all faiths that seek to get more people, more members in, right? In fact, these other faiths have resorted to many, often uh, very um, violent actions, to accrue more members. Now, and that's not, that, that's not a, I'm not uh, being judgmental. I'm not uh, in any way disgracing another religion. That's not my intention. It's simply to state a fact. Simply to state a fact. Historically, Christians have killed people in order to bring more Christian, to convert people to Christianity. Islam has killed people, or in the name of Islam, people have been killed in order to force people to convert to Islam. Judaism has never in its history done this. Because in Judaism, conversion is not considered to be the Holy Grail. It's not something that is encouraged. And the question is, why or why not? Why is it not encouraged? So to really understand this, we need to go back and review a little bit of world history. Specifically with a focus on religious history. So back in the day, I mean back in the day, the early beginnings of humankind, People had kind of a tribalistic approach. There were different tribes, and each tribe had its own gods or god. And the way, it, the way it worked is when tribes were warring or fighting, so it was considered to be, the, the mythology was that the, their, their respective gods are the ones that are actually fighting. So it's starting off with the gods fighting, it's manifesting with the people fighting. Whichever people win is a sign that, that, that their god won, and thus, the, the loser, the losing tribe, would adopt the religious belief of the victorious tribe. So this was a tribalism way where the conqueror um, kind of set the, uh, set the tone for the, for, the, for the god belief. And there were multiple gods and warring gods, and that was the chaotic life that people lived. Well, Judaism introduced the notion of monotheism, which is, no, we don't have war, multiple gods and my god, your god. No, there's one god, 
One God for all. That's what Judaism introduced. That's monotheism. But here's the problem. The problem is Christianity and Islam took this concept and they said, great, we're going to run with this. We love this. We love this idea of one God. However, they put a little bit of a spin on it. And I know I'm kind of painting with a broad brush, but work with me here. Christianity and Islam, in their own way, both came to the same conclusion, and that is that there's one God, but, and here's the kicker, here's the addition that Judaism never had. You ready for this one? I think you are. And that is that there's only one way to serve the one God. That was their addition. Not only, you know what, let me say it in a Talmudic way. You ready to learn some Talmud or to at least hear how Talmud goes? All right, buckle up. Not only is there one God, but there's only one way to worship that God. That's what they added on. So Christianity said, there's one God. You got to serve him our way. If not, huh, you know what Christianity says. Yeah? If you don't exactly prescribe to the Christian beliefs, help me out here, guys. What, what's, what's in store? What's in store? Come on. Hell. Yeah? <laughs> Hell, eternal damnation, no salvation, right? We all know the story, yeah? It's not good. It's not, what, what does it mean? There's one God and there's only one way to serve that God. Islam said the same thing. Islam says the same thing. Again, different beliefs, different, different nuances, but at the core, the same thing. There's one God and there's only one way. This was a distortion of the monotheism that Judaism initiated. These are considered to be the daughter religions of Judaism, the sister religions of Judaism, whatever family relation you want to ascribe to it. These are considered to be relatives to Judaism, but at its core, there's a fundamental distinction at the core. Christianity and Islam both say, that you have to serve God in our way. It's our way or the highway. And it's not even the highway because highways are not so bad. Um, Judaism. Judaism is different. Judaism, which spawned monotheism, not spawned, Judaism, Abraham, who started monotheism. And it's always consistently for 3,300 years. Sorry, 3,500 years. 3,600 years. Judaism has held the same line. And that is, there's only one God, but, and here's where, it, where it's different, there are many ways to serve God. There are many paths to connect with God, and it doesn't need to be the Jewish way. Take a look at text number one. I'm going to share this text with you. This is from one of my favorite modern scholars, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Take a look. Text one, I'm going to read it out loud. Join with me as we read this. Well, you don't have to join verbally, but just join me in, uh, in mind. Judaism has a structural peculiarity so perplexing and profound that though its two daughter monotheisms, Christianity and Islam, took much from it, they did not adopt this. It is a particularist monotheism. It believes in one God, check this out, but not in one exclusive path to salvation. The God of the Israelites is the God of all mankind, but the demands made of the Israelites are not asked of all mankind. That line is so key. The God of the Israelites is the God of all mankind. But the demands made of the Israelites are not asked of all mankind. In other words, 
Jews have their way and others have their way. There is no equivalent in Judaism to the doctrine extra ecclesiam non es salus. That's my attempt at Latin. Outside the church, there is no salvation. That's the Christian doctrine. On the contrary, Judaism's ancient sages maintained that, quote, this is from the Talmud, the pious of the nations have a share in the world to come. I, I, I know I'm jumping in. I know I said this before. I'm going to say it again a few times. I cannot overemphasize or emphasize enough how revolutionary this concept is and still is today. Let's continue. Indeed, the Bible takes it for granted that the God of Israel is not only the God of Israel. He is also the God of Abraham's contemporary, Melchizedek, king of Shalem, not a member of the covenantal family, but still, quote, a priest of the Most High God. He is acknowledged by Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and a Midianite priest who gives Israel its first lesson in government, the appointment of heads of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. In other words, God is not just a God. The one God is not just the Jewish God. He's the God of all people, of all mankind, of the entire universe. Judaism has its way of connecting. Others have their way of connecting. This is huge. This is so profoundly egalitarian. And this has far-reaching ramifications, including explaining why Judaism has never sought converts. And here's what it comes down to. Judaism has always maintained that you do not need to worship God in the particularly Jewish way in order to have a relationship with God, in order to find salvation, in order to go to heaven, in order to be a good person, Judaism never maintained that you need to be Jewish or practice the Jewish way in order to be a mensch, spiritual, connected, worthy of heaven, etc. Judaism always believed that Jews have their path of worship and the rest of humanity, others have their own paths of worship. So when it comes down to the number of mitzvot, for example, Jews, we know, have, according to the Torah, I mean, just read through the Torah, Jews have 613 unique mitzvot, unique commandments. The rest of mankind, seven. Seven basic core ethical mandates. Um, so there's certainly a unique Jewish way, but it's not the only way, nor is it a better way. It's just a different way. It's, a it's the better way for the Jew because the Jew is meant to have a specifically Jewish connection with God. But it's not necessarily, it's not meant for everyone else. So I want to share with you an analogy to, again, just deepen this idea. Let's, let's draw an analogy from the human body. Text number two. This is from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. When it comes to contemplating the existence of God, one must first of all realize that a finite human being, even the wisest of men, cannot grasp the mind and thought of the Creator, whose attributes are essentially incomprehensible as himself, except to the extent that he willed to reveal in the Torah. In other words, you and I, we can never fully understand God, only that which God reveals about himself as viewed through the lens of Torah. Now, let's back inside. Now, insofar as the human race is concerned, the Torah tells us that it has evolved by the design of the Creator into a variety of components rather than one massive uniform block. Just as the physical human body consists of a variety of organs and parts, each with its purpose and function, nothing in it is useless or superfluous. For as our sages tell us, the Creator has not created anything useless in this world. I just want to just deepen this for a second or elaborate. You know, an embryo starts off with a, as a single 
entity, you know, undefined entity, and then it develops into a body with limbs, etc., and different limbs, different functions, different organs. The same thing is true, Adam and Eve. The first people, you know, you're kind of universal, but then very particular, it has developed, it has evolved. Let's continue. One, of course, one of course may wonder... Sorry, of course, one may wonder, why did God choose one nation out of all mankind to give it his Torah and mitzvot and designate it as a kingdom of Kohanim, God's servants, and a holy nation? But this would be like asking, why must the human body consist of such a variety of different parts, from the brain and heart to the foot and soul? Why not make it all heart or brain? Um, oh, and that's it. Okay, so what I want to draw from this is this last idea, this notion of the human body consisting of a variety of parts. So... What this means is that just like the human body has diversity, right? And diversity is a good thing. Imagine if, if a body had only heart everywhere, right? A heart here, a heart there, a heart there, a heart there, nothing else. That's not a functioning person. Only a brain, not a functioning person. Only feet, not a functioning person. It's a variety of limbs and organs that comprises a human body. The same thing is true with the universe. Same, sorry, the same thing is true with humanity. God created different people, different nations, different faiths, different, different paths. And the message is God loves the diversity. God loves this composite that is like the human body with different organs, different limbs. So is one better than the other? No. Are they different than, than each other? Absolutely. And herein we get to the same point I made last week regarding gender roles, etc. in Judaism. Here's the point. Equality does not equal sameness. Equality means honoring diversity and appreciating the unique gifts that the other, not you, the other is bringing to the table. I mean, appreciate your own gifts also, but the ability to appreciate also the gifts and the uniqueness that the other one has that's not like you. For someone to say, I only value you, you only count if you drop everything that you love and you be like me, then I accept you. That's not called acceptance. Are you with me? If someone tells you you need to change everything about yourself, you need to lose your beliefs. You have to lose your loves. You have to lose your dislikes. You have to lose everything about yourself. You have to copy me, and only then do you have value. Only then do I love you. Only then do you count. That's a toxic relationship. Run the other way. If somebody ever tells you that, you can quote me. Tell them that's not acceptance. That's not love. That's not tolerance. <laughs> that's nothing. That's ego. So Judaism has never maintained that to be a good person, you have to be Jewish. Judaism has never maintained that in order to go to heaven, you have to be Jewish. Judaism has never maintained that in order to have a relationship with God, you have to be Jewish. Judaism says God, there's only one God, and God is big enough, big enough to connect with a diverse spectrum of human beings and faiths, etc. That is why Judaism has never pushed for conversion. Why, why would Judaism push for conversion? You are fine, Judaism would say to the other person, person that's asking about conversion, you are fine the way you are. You can connect with God as you are. You can 
I mean, not like we're living to go to heaven. I mean, we should be enjoying the moment now. But you, you can go to heaven as you are, right? There's no flaw. There's nothing wrong. As opposed to other faiths that have said, unless you believe like us, you're fundamentally flawed. You're fundamentally eternally damned, etc. Judaism never felt like that. Well, it makes sense that Judaism never pushed for conversion. Why would they? Why would we? All right. Questions? Yes, Alan. Uh, I, I always introduce myself as the errant Catholic, but I'm still at least nominally that. And a couple of things, uh, sort of in somewhat of a disjointed way, is that I agree with you, not that that's necessary for you to be um, accurate, but I agree with you that historically Christianity has used uh, force, uh, threat, or the actuality of, of threats of death you know, to force converts, which of course is antithetical to the whole concept of a, con a, a conversion. Um, but for, for, for a couple of things. One, it, even, and I say even, the Catholic Church, which made that, I'm not aware of that the Protestant Church ever did that, but the Catholic Church now says that what you said of Christianity is no longer required. In other words, and I, I hearken back to is it uh, Rabbi Steinberg? Is that the book I read? No, that, yeah. yeah, the Rabbi Steinberg book, which I think is one of the best books I've ever read, who goes through, the, I think, the entire spectrum of Judaism, uh, talks about the good life. And he doesn't mean a Ferrari in the driveway. He means being a good person for your life. Um, and I think it's a wonderful concept. And um, uh, But, but it, the church today would say that if you, these are my words, not the Catholic Church's words. If you live a good life, and you and I guess probably believe in God, the monotheistic God, you will go to heaven. Um, that's that's great. I would say this. That's great progress, because as a, as a Jew, I would say that we know our history, and we know our history very well. There have been incredible amounts. I mean, uh, th this is a longer conversation. The historically, the amount of expulsions and pogroms and and uh, just the, the incredible persecution, and even the notion of Jews for Jesus, which is the newest twist. You understand what that twist is? Jews for Jesus. It's when they realize that you can't squeeze the Judaism out of a Jew by force. So it's like, aha, you can still be a Jew and believe in Jesus, boom! So we're now going to make it nice and friendly. That was the latest twist of the 20th century. After they realized that after 2,000 years of trying, it's not going to work. You can kill us, you can burn us, you can do whatever you want. We're not giving it up. By the way, I'm not, uh, this is not, I'm not aiming this uh, intensity to you. This is just, I'm very passionate about this. After they realized, after the church realized that they can't schlep it out of us, they can't force it out of us. They said, aha, let's come up with a name. Let's come up with an angle that will make it safe. In other words, so you're st you'll still be a Jew, but you'll be for Jesus. And even though that makes no sense, it's like vegetarians for meat. It, it, the whole thing doesn't make sense. Nonetheless, let's mash it up and hopefully people won't realize. I mean, this is where we're at right now. So if the church, if I, I, I'm, I haven't been you know, keeping up, if the church today... It's, if its position is that you don't need to be Christian, you don't need to be Catholic, you don't need to believe in Jesus, you don't need to accept the New Testament, 
you don't need to, you know, if, if their position is you don't need to do anything like we do or believe, and you can still be a good person and we still love you and there's no strings attached, if that's where the church is today, kal hakavod, which means more power, more power to it. And I'm very happy to hear that. And I consider that to be incredible progress. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah. No, it's a wonderfully, and I will say, t- honestly, what I will say is, once again, here's an example of Jewish values slowly, 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 slowly taking root and having an impact on others and the rest of society. The Jewish perspective, live and let live, or worship and let worship, hopefully, right, is finally pervading populist thought. If that's the case, I am, uh, I'm, as they say, I'm over the moon. I'm thrilled. Um, by the way, by the way, it's important to remember this. And here's a line, like a bumper sticker line. We believe in one God who made many people, a diverse number of people. And we don't believe that we create God in our image because all of us are just particular. We're just one. When we create God in our image, then God also becomes very particular. And God becomes, guess what? Just like us, right? God would only want what we want because we're creating God in our image. Judaism never believed that God has an image, nor are we allowed to create God in our image. We are created, on the contrary, in God's image. The one God created diversity. It's our job. Clearly, God loves the diversity. It's our job to also love the diversity and not to become so monolithic. It has to be one way. We believe in monotheism, not in mono, I'm going to invent some words here. This is a mashup. Mono sapienism, which again, probably doesn't exist, but we don't believe that, every, that people need to be or worship in the same way. By the way, this answers our second question. And I know you're waited with bated breath. What's the second question? Second question is, why isn't saying that Jews are the chosen people, why isn't that racist? Sounds racist. Chosen people. What does that mean about everyone else? All right. Let's address that. That's, our, that's question number two. First of all, it's not racist because Jews are not a race. <laughs> Jews are of all races. Uh, you don't have to be a certain race to be Jewish. What it, what it means to be Jewish is essentially embracing the ideals and, and belief system of Judaism. And you don't ha- no one has to. If one chooses, they can join. Oh, I should mention. I'm, I know I... I, I we're in question two. Let me go take a half a step back or a quarter of a step back. Although Judaism is not, is not uh, um, encouraged, but Judaism is uh, 100% accepted. 100% accepted at its core. And I think I mentioned this before. At its core, conversion means somebody who says, I'm comfortable where I am and who I am, but I specifically want to follow the Jewish path and embrace Torah and mitzvot, the 613 unique Jewish pathways. You don't ha- I don't have to. I'm fine the way I am, but that is my passion. That's what I'm excited about. Somebody says that, 100% embraced. Somebody embraces and accepts Torah and mitzvot, the Jewish path, then they're absolutely accepted to the point that we say that there is a Jewish soul, a specific Jewish connection, etc. But now, going back to the second question about Chosen people, isn't that a, uh, a racist? Doesn't that sound racist? Again, it's, Judaism is not a race. There are Jews of all races, so it's not a racist thing. Uh, there's no racism there at all. 
Um, but what about elitism? Isn't, doesn't it sound elite to say chosen? Chosen implies that others are not chosen. That doesn't sound nice. Um, so let's understand the meaning of the word chosen, which I think is very misunderstood, even for Jews. Chosen doesn't mean better. Chosen doesn't mean elite. Chosen means designated for a purpose, right? Jews, the Jewish people have been designated. Uh, this is according to Jewish belief in the Torah, right? So Jewish, Judaism believes what the Torah says, that God chose the Jewish people to have a unique set of obligations, in other, i.e. 613 instead of 7. That's the unique path of connection for the Jew. Is that better? I don't know if it's better. It's definitely more complicated. It's definitely more difficult. It's definitely more taxing. It's definitely more detailed. Is it better? Who's to judge what's better and what's worse? It's different. It's chosen. It's unique. That is the definition and the only definition of the chosen people. Chosen means chosen for a mission, chosen for a specific purpose, chosen for a specific way of being. Um, in general, in general, all human beings are chosen. The fact that any one of us has been born, the fact that anyone exists on this planet, according to our belief system, is essentially God saying, I choose you individually to be here and to be part of the purpose of creation, which is to make the world a better place. Everyone in their own way, with their own tools, with their own gifts, with their own ability, in their time, in their place, in their, in their surroundings. That's what we believe. That's what Judaism believes. And that's common to everybody. So everyone is chosen. What does it mean that the Jews are the chosen people? They have a, 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 unique, a unique mission, a unique obligation. By the way, in addition to the obligation, to the mission of the 613 commandments, Jews also have an obligation to be a light unto the nations. And what does that mean? To be a good example of what it means to be someone who brings light into the world, someone dedicated to a higher purpose. That's our job, to do our job and to be a good example of what it means to be a mensch, which is why it's very painful sometimes when we have, you know, situations where Jews, maybe famous Jews, are not being so menschy. It doesn't, it's not a good look, and it does the opposite of what we're meant to do. We're meant to be a light unto the nation and not a blight unto the nation, if that makes sense, right? We're meant to be an inspiration and not, uh, not the opposite. So we carry, I'm just, you know, just speaking from a Jewish perspective, there's a lot of responsibility because what we do <laughs> makes an impact. Look, Jews are news. That's the reality. Jews make the news. Um, if you don't believe me, look how much press Israel has gotten over the years. Uh, Jews are news. Uh, there's no, I, you, I, if, if, if you disagree and you want to you know, go through it, I'm happy to do that offline and we can just Google some things and pull up uh, UN resolutions and see how many are targeted to, uh, to the Jewish state. Uh, listen, it is what it is. Jews are news and what we do makes an impact. Right? What Israel does makes the news, and it, it becomes uh, the, the front page. So, with that being said, we have a responsibility. We can't take it lightly. We have to take it seriously. We have a responsibility to be a mensch, to do what we need to do, and to be a light unto the nations. Okay, so that covers, hopefully, questions one and two. Question one was, why don't we see converts? And the answer was, because we don't believe that you need to be Jewish to be a good person. And number two, 
isn't, uh, wh why isn't saying uh, that we're the chosen people, why isn't that racist? Number one, it's not a race. Number two, it's not elitist either. It's just saying that we are chosen for a very specific mission that is different than others, and, uh, and we therefore have responsibility. It's actually a call to responsibility and not for anything, uh, uh, not any elitism type of declaration. Okay, let me pause here. We did two questions out of nine. Questions or comments? Let me check in with all y'all. Um, David, okay, I see David in the chat. There's a measure that we chose, yes. Yes, God offered the Torah, the 613 obligations to the other nations, according to our tradition, and the other nations said, we'll pass. Sounds very taxing. It sounds very daunting. The Jewish people said, we're in. We're in because if you're offering a God, that's it. We'll take it. Um, okay. Any other questions? Adina Malka, go ahead. I always thought we were a race. Always. How do you define a race? It could just be, by the way, I, 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 sometimes when it comes to these types of conversations, it's really important to define the terms that we're discussing. So let's first define the terms and then we can deal with the, with the, uh, the, the topic at hand. How do you define race? Well, like Japanese are a race or Negroes are a race or... Um, okay, so, so I guess my simple response would be there are Japanese Jews and there are black Jews, there are Jews from all nationalities, there are Jews from all cultures, there are Jews from all um, skin colors. There, are, there, there is no specific um, look that a Jew needs to have or race that a Jew needs to have because to be Jewish means that you're, you're, you're essentially embracing and following the Jewish path of 613 uh, commandments of the Torah. That's what it means to be Jewish. It's not a race. It's a, it's a way of being. Well, he chose us as a people so that people is not a race. The people is a nation or? Yeah, Judaism is not a race. I mean, look up race. Judaism is not a race. That's it. I, I, I mean, I'm not sure what else to say. It's, huh? What are we if we're not a race? Uh, that's what the existential question. Why do you think Jews are so neurotic? We haven't figured it out all these years. Like, what are we if we're not a race? Gavald, what? Who are we? What are we? All right, I'll let you know when we figure it out. We, who are we? We're a people that God chose to live a specific a, a specific form of life, to hopefully be good examples for others, and to to lead a good life, to be a mensch. That's it. Rabbi, Ray, go ahead. Um, so where the other nations weren't interested, the Jewish people said, "Not a set the nishma." First they. We're going, they would do it, and then yes. they would hear. Yes, Jews always love a good deal. No problem. We'll buy the entire lot. We'll buy all the merchandise, wholesale and retail. No problem. We're going to do it. We're buying the, the storage locker. That's it. Yeah, we said, yeah, we said, Nasa Vinishma. God said, do you want it? And we said, listen, God, if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for us. That's what we said. The other nation said, tell us what it says. And when they heard what it says, they're like, yeah, maybe not. Sounds, sounds very uh, complicated. By the way, it is. Jerusalem is not easy. It's not easy to, uh, to, to follow Torah mitzvot. I mean, we're all working on it to our, uh, on our own ability. I mean, I don't think anyone's ever mastered it. You know, there's no such thing as a super Jew. We're all, it's, a, it's a work in process. It's a, it's a difficult thing. But hey, that's... Yeah, Donna. So, in the, from your last comment, that we weren't necessarily chosen 
we were the one, one of, we eventually were the ones to accept the offer. Yeah, that's what David was saying in the chat. In other words, is it that God chose us or we chose God, right? But again, it, it's, it's the idea of chosen means that there's a unique mission. That's what chosen really means. Chosen means there's a unique mission. Is it better? I don't know. It's unique. It's different. Is different better? I don't know. Everyone's different in their own way, and we have our own difference. But that's what it means. It doesn't mean there's no elitism. Um, yeah, Alan, go ahead. Uh, a quick thing. Uh, two things. One, uh, and I really fault Christianity for this, um, is, is that I did not remotely recognize the connection between Judaism in the Old Testament and Christianity in the New until I was reading the part that I could understand of the prayer book and going to the synagogue with Deborah. And the reason for that, I mean, if you ask most Christians, why do we have the, the Old Testament in the Bible? The, 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 you, you can't get a coherent answer out of any of them, as far as I could ever have ever heard. Secondly, one would believe that uh, I almost feel like I've been misled because they talk about Christ introducing love to the world in a sense of justice and mercy and love your fellow man, which happens to be, I think, a quote as your brother or whatever it is from the Old Testament. Um, but you'd think to talk to most Christians, and they, and they believe this, it isn't like they've made a choice. Uh, that, the, that that came through Christ. Well, obviously it didn't. I'm reading along in the prayer book in the left margin there. I can remember the page, and it talks about uh, uh, on the left page that that was the concept of Judaism. Yeah. It was a Jew. It was a good idea to love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, there's something else that I think is important to mention, and this is also something that's not talked about much. Jesus was Jewish. It makes sense that he had Jewish values, right? <laughs> Think about it. He was a Jew, right? And there's a, there's a, 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 there's a big question historically, you know, what's, what's really the deal? And, and to, now is not the time to get into this. And, you know, we have a lot of questions and we're going we're gonna to continue with question number three in a moment. But the bottom line is that, indeed, I, I, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not an expert in, uh, in Christian beliefs, etc., as I've said before. Um, but those values that you mentioned are definitely Jewish values, and uh, they're all very well rooted and very well um, uh, discussed in, in the Torah, in the Jewish Bible, in the Talmud, in the Midrash, and other Jewish sources um, to this very day. In fact, love your fellows yourself is considered to be, according to Rabbi Akiva, one of the great sages of the Mishnah, the Mishnaic era, um, the, the great teaching one of the great teachings, one of the Zeklal Gadol. This is a great principle of the entire Torah. All right, let's move on to question number three. Now, this is a philosophical question that I have received. I cannot tell you how many times I've been asked this question. And it's a question that you might have asked before. Maybe you got an answer. Uh, maybe you were satisfied with the answer. Maybe you weren't. I don't know, but tonight we're going to explore it in this context. And... Let me skip some text over here. Okay. Question number three. Why do we believe that we have free choice if God always knew how we would choose? So the question here pits free choice against 
God's knowledge of our choice. Let me phrase it to you in this way. Okay, here's the, here's the way I would phrase it. This is not going to be phrased as a why, but just as something to think about to really understand the question to then appreciate the answer. So, I'll ask you a question. Do we believe, do you believe, that you have free choice, free will, the freedom to choose in any moment what you will do? Yes? Yeah. Okay, I mean, in normative circumstances, again, I mean, somebody could come up with a scenario where they're being forced at gunpoint, God forbid, obviously, let's leave the extremes aside. In most normative situations, you're faced with a choice. Do you have the choice? Yes. By the way, this is not just something that we know anecdotally from our own experience in our own life, which I, I would hope we know that, um, but it's also a fundamental, it's a foundational idea in Judaism. Because if you and I don't have free choice, then the whole Torah goes out the window. So then why tell us, why does the Torah tell us what to do, what not to do, if we don't have the ability to choose that? Right? If God says, I want you to do this, but a person can say, God, I can't. I've been compelled, inside, outside, whatever it is, to, to behave otherwise. If a person could ever have that excuse and it would be justified, then the whole Torah goes out the window. So the premise of Torah is that at any moment you and I have the choice whether we're going to follow what God wants or sometimes what we want selfishly. So that's the big idea. That's one of the big foundations, as Maimonides um, explains, of Judaism. At the same time, I want to ask you another question. So, so you and I, I, I know I'm doing a lot of talking, but I'm seeing some nodding, so I'm, I'm encouraged to keep on going. So if I ask you, do you have free choice? I think most of us have just said yes. Okay. Do you believe... Or does Judaism believe? Maybe it's the same thing, maybe it's not. Uh, but do you believe that God knows everything that is going to transpire? So Judaism would say, Judaism would say, yes. That there's nothing that God is surprised about. It's not like God's like, huh, I had no idea. You know what? Yankle over there, could have gone either way. Oh well, now let's roll with the punches. Now let's, you know, quickly chart a new path, you know, write the script, God says, all right, let's quickly fill this in. Uh, you know, this guy took me for a loop. God knows what's going on. God knows what's going to happen. There's a word for this. Um, we call this omniscience, the all-knowing reality of God. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. All right, different values of God, but this all-knowing value means that God knows. Nothing is catching God by surprise. So here's the question. In this moment right now, let's say I give you a choice, right? And, and, and there's obviously a third choice, which is to do none of the above. But let's just say I give you a choice. Either raise your right hand or your left hand. Okay, you can choose. You can freely choose. I am not compelling you either right or left. It's up to you. In fact, in Zoom, who even knows which is the right and which is the left? I don't know if this is a mirror or this... Yeah. Who knows? This is my right, by the way. I'm not sure how that looks to you, but either way. So if I told you you can lift, yeah, two options, right or left hand, it's up to you. Okay. So you, do you have a choice? Yes. Absolutely, yes. Anyone compelling you? No. In this moment right now, is anyone forcing you right or left? No. Does God know what you're going to do? Yes. So how do you have a choice? 
<laughs> if God knows that you're going to pick up your right hand, so then you can't lift your left hand. Are you with me in the question? It like hurts the brain a little bit to think about this, right? So a person might think, wait a second, so I have free choice, but God knows, so I'm going to do the opposite, but then God would know that, and then you start like screaming inside your brain like, ah, like what's going on? I can't get out of this. I'm stuck. I'm compelled. God knows I can't do otherwise. There is no freedom of choice. It's a farce. So that's where we're at. That's the question. Is freedom of choice real? If it's real, how does God know? If God knows, how do we choose? If we choose, how does God know? Yeah. That's how the question goes. So there are many forms of this question. I, I framed it in one way. This, the way I framed it to you right now is the way that I've been asked at least a hundred times by people from the community. Um, you know, how do we have freedom of choice if God knows what we're going to do? If God knows what we're going to do, then can we really choose otherwise? And if we choose otherwise, then God didn't know, but we can't say that. So we're stuck. The question is phrased like this has a, a, a very beautiful answer. There are other ways to phrase the question, by the way, which make it more complicated to answer, but we're not doing that tonight. We're going to go with the, the normative way of asking the question and a, a down-the-middle um, perspective to answer it. So the first thing we need to do in addressing this very, very heavy question is recognizing that the opposite of choice... Okay. I'm going to ask you this, and I'm not going to tell you this. Okay, if choice is a word, which it is, and it's a concept, which it is, what's the antonym? What's the opposite of choice? What's the opposite of choice? Give me a word, one word, that's the opposite of choice, or the freedom to choose. Huh? Obligation. What else? Force. Good, force. The word I'm thinking is compulsion, right? There's choice. And if you don't have choice, that means you were compelled. There's compulsion. So either choice or compulsion. Okay. So understand this, that knowledge does not equal compulsion. The fact that someone knows something does not mean that it's forced. I'll give you an example. I know that when you take an egg on planet Earth, when you take an egg and you drop it on your kitchen, in your kitchen, I know what's going to happen. What, what's going to happen? Again, unmute yourself. Help me out here. What's going to happen if I, drop, if, 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 if I drop the egg in my kitchen floor? The dog will eat it. It's going to, right, exactly. It's going to fall. It's going to crack, and it's going to make a mess. Okay? That's what's, I know it's going to happen. Does my knowledge create gravity? Does my knowledge of gravity create it? Does my knowledge of an egg falling and cracking create that scenario? Does my knowledge make it to be? No. No. My mind doesn't make it to be. It is, and therefore I know. And in fact, I'm not giving you a random example. It happened tonight. One of my kids was making eggs and had two eggs on the kitchen table. Two eggs. And then was moving some stuff around. And within moments, I was in the kitchen, the other side of the kitchen. I heard, ksh, ksh, two eggs fell. Now, if he would have asked me, if, uh, you know, Tati, dad, in Yiddish, if I knock the egg off the table, is it going to fall? Yeah. Yeah, and then he knocks it off the table. Let's just say that happens. It was an accident, obviously, but let's say, let's say that the conversation plays out. Did my knowledge make it fall? Does my knowledge create the existence of gravity and the fragility of the egg? Of course not. 
Knowledge does not equal compulsion, especially when it's knowing something outside of itself and knowing something that's either reality or knowing something after the fact. So here's what we need to know. And that is that God is above time. I'm going to add another layer to this response. God is above time. See, this is something that we can't fully wrap our heads around because we're so stuck in time that we can't really imagine what it's like to be outside of time. Even when we imagine time travel, you know, science fiction, time travel, back to the future, whatever, it's still stuck within the, the, within the limitations of time. Even, even when we, in our own imagination, break out of time, we're still stuck in time. We're still bound by, by, uh, by elements of, of time's structure because it's hard to imagine something that's so outside the box that it's not at all in our, any sort of experience. But here's what we believe in. Here's what Judaism teaches. That God, who is the creator, God is not bound by the rules of creation. God is not bound by the sandbox that he created, by the square that he put us inside. I know earth is round, but right, you get what I'm saying. God is not bound by the limitations that he created and imposed upon us, which means that God is not limited to a time and a structure of time that is linear. In fact, Kabbalah teaches us, Jewish mystical teachings, that time is created, sorry, time is a creation that was created for the purpose of creating the world. In fact, the first thing that's created is time and space. And where do we find the creation of time? In the beginning. The first word of the Torah is Bereshit, in the beginning. What does that mean? When you say the word beginning, what does that imply? Time. Beginning implies a beginning of something that is going to stretch out and have a next step. So in the beginning, God created a beginning. In other words, God created the notion of time. But before that, there's no time. Time is timeless. And not in the sense of good art and music um, or novel, but God is timeless in that past, present, and future exist simultaneous within God's experience. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? How does that feel? I don't know. Because we're stuck in time. I'm stuck in time. You're stuck in time. We can't fathom what that means. We can only know that to say that God is stuck in time like us is extremely arrogant and extremely presumptuous and extremely in the modality of creating God in our image. So to say that God is also bound by linear time, to say that God is moving through time as we move through time, is in Yiddish what we would call a chutzpah. We can't, we can't apply human limitation and this universal limitation on God. We don't believe in a God that's limited. Okay, that being said, for you and I, we experience time as it happens. And our choice is happening, the right hand or the left hand is happening right now or in a moment from now. But for God, who's timeless, God has already seen what we're going to choose even before we chose it. And I know what you're thinking. If we haven't chosen it yet, how does God see it? God is not limited by time. So that means that the entirety of time, this entire spectrum of time that still hasn't yet fully played out, all of that is simultaneously happening before God. In fact, that's the meaning of God's name in Scripture. Yudkevavke, the four-letter name of God. Haya, Hoveh, Vihiyeh. Past, present, and future all wrapped in a simultaneous bundle. God is past, present, and future at once. There is no 
linear time stretching out before God. So what this means is essentially that God has already seen our choice. So God knows if we will raise our right hand or left hand because God has already seen it even before we made the choice. But if we haven't made the choice, how could God see it? Don't get stuck in time. Don't impose your time limitations on God. So it's kind of like this. Here's the analogy. Imagine the Super Bowl. Imagine you're watching the Super Bowl and you can predict with 100% accuracy every single play that transpires. Every run play, every pass play, every audible, every touchdown, every safety or sack, every interception, you can predict play by play exactly what's going to happen. And the person you're watching the game with is blown away. They think you're a prophet. But the reason that you know this is because what you're watching is a videotape of the game that already played yesterday because you're watching the Super Bowl on the Monday after the Super Bowl. So you have the benefit of knowing what already happened. When you call the play, it's going to be a reverse. It's going to be a touchdown. It's going to be a field goal. Yeah, interception. When you call the play, you're not making it happen. You're not wishing it into existence. You're just recalling what already has transpired. In a similar way, God is always standing above and outside the structure of time, and therefore God is always privy to what we have chosen or what we will choose because God has already seen what we have chosen. Does that make sense? In a nonsensical way, kind of, does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. Um, and let me share this text with you where you can see this written out. This is from the Midrash Shmuel, which is a beautiful commentary on Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. All right, let's, uh, let's go to the English. Probably easier to read. Okay, here we go. God sees in the present what the future will be. He foreknows everything that will befall us until the day we die. From the beginning of time, He observes our inevitable demise and all of our choices during our lifetime. Why? How? For He is not subject to the limitations of time. The lines between past and future are not drawn. Accordingly, our choices were not decreed by Him, God forbid. There's no compulsion. Rather, He looks and sees what we will choose until our last day. Rabbi Moshe Almasnino, Almasnino um, suggested the following parable. If I see Reuben, Reuven running, although my knowledge of this fact is flawless, one cannot say that Reuben is forced to run due to my seeing and knowing that he is running. Despite my knowledge, he is running by choice. Similarly, God's knowledge does not compel our choices. God's knowledge is knowledge of the present. There is no future for him because he transcends the confines of time. Our future, listen to this line, our future is God's present. And just like our knowledge of the present does not affect people's choices, I mean, you're seeing the guy running, right? So to his knowledge, always about the present, does not affect our choices. The confusion that we have in this regard is rooted in the fact that we cannot fathom the notion of God knowing the future and the present, right? We can't fathom the timelessness of God, which in turn is due to our thinking of God's knowledge through the prism of our own limited knowledge. So the reason why we can't understand this is because we're trying to impose our limitations on God, or we can't, at the very least, we can't imagine a reality outside of our own limitations. But again, that is a little bit arrogant for us to presume such, Judaism teaches that God is not, not limited by that, uh, by, by the, by, by that limitation. 
So if you see somebody running, they're running, and you're observing, um, therefore, so in a similar way, God sees what we choose. Great question. Question coming in is, why doesn't, hold on, it just disappeared. Question is, why doesn't God make everyone do the right thing? Oh, that's, that is, if only, right? Oh, that would be the greatest gift. The reason is because in the long term, it wouldn't be the greatest gift. God wants us to choose the, the right thing. Adina Malka, you have the PDF. Um, God, chooses, God wants us to choose to do what's right on our own. That's why we have choice in the first place. So you're asking, so why choice in the first place? Just make it happen. God already has beings that follow orders like that. They're called angels. Angels are, they're doing the right thing. There's no choice. There's no messing up. It's, it's all perfection. It's all wonderful. But God wanted a realm, you know, God wanted a realm where there are creatures, namely human beings, who have their absolute own choice. For, for better or for worse. Because then and only then will the choices be meaningful. I'll give you an example. In a relationship, if you compel someone to be with you, if you compel someone, I, I'm not, I'm not going to give you the scenario how that's possible, but if you compel someone to love you, is it real love? It's not real love. It's not a real relationship. If you force someone in a relationship, if you force someone to be with you, it's not, it's not a relationship. That's not being with. A real relationship is one that comes with the person's free choice. No one, at the end of the day, I can't say no one, I mean, uh, but a, a healthy human being doesn't want someone to love them because they made them love them. How does that make you feel if the other person only loves you because you made them love you? Right? It feels good to be loved by that person's choice. They could have loved anybody, but they, they chose to love me. That feels good. God wanted creatures to choose freely. They could choose anything, or they could choose God. Choosing God, oh, now it's a real relationship. So God, God's relationship with the angels is not, is not real. It's like you create a robot, artificial love, artificial intelligence love. Program a robot to say, I love you. How, how, how good does that feel? I don't know, not that good to me. I can't imagine how that, how that would feel good to anybody. But knowing that a person could choose anything, anyone, but they chose to love me, they chose to love you, that's, that's pretty incredible. So God gives us free choice so that we will choose God and the Torah and the mitzvot to choose to do the right thing. But with real choice comes real power and, and we don't get it right often, sometimes. Let's be nice. Sometimes we don't get it right. God has patience, and, uh, and hopefully we get it right. And, you know, life is like an Etch-a-Sketch sometimes. We can, we can clear, the, clear the deck, clear the, clear the mess. Remember the Etch-a-Sketch? Right? You shake it up, and it's clear again. We have Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. We have times and, and, and moments in which we can clean the slate and, and start again. Okay, so that's with free choice. Does that make sense? Any questions on free choice? Again, there's a lot more on the topic. And we just did a, a, one treatment of it. Going once, going twice. I'm giving you free choice. You can ask, you cannot ask. You see? All right. Let's move on to question number four. This is a very interesting question. 
I'm going to pull it up on the screen. Question number four has to do with slavery. Why does the Torah permit slavery? So, the premise of the question is that Torah permits slavery, right? Let's put it this way. Torah does not um, abolish all forms of slavery. Torah doesn't mandate slavery. You don't have to, you know, slavery is not, does, is not mandated. But under certain circumstances, it is allowed. And our question is, why? And there's a lot of discomfort here with this question or with this topic because the same Torah that champions human rights, that teaches us that human beings are fundamentally created in the image of God, that teaches us that slavery is wrong by informing us of the story of the Jewish people in Egypt and of the Exodus and mandating that Jews relive this experience every single year on the holiday of Passover, recite it in our prayers every single day, multiple times a day. The very same Judaism that reminds us of the wrongs of slavery, of the evils of slavery, of the horrors of slavery, of the goodness of being freed from slavery, the very same Torah does not um, uh, completely abolish slavery. And the question is, why not? It doesn't make sense and it doesn't feel right. Make no mistake, in no place does Torah say that slavery is good, go out and get a slave. But again, Torah does not abolish all forms of slavery, and the question is, why? So the question has been addressed over the years, you know, since, uh, since the Torah first emerged, emerged 3,300 years ago. But especially in modern times, when we know the horrors of slavery, and we, uh, slavery, the concept of slavery is abhorrent to us, so the question, once again, comes up. So, typically, sorry, as usual, we have to understand the Torah in its context. So let's take a look at uh, a text 10a. This is from Rabbi Samson Rafal Hirsch, a great scholar of the 19th century. And here's what he writes. The consideration of certain circumstances is necessary to correctly understand the fact that the Torah presupposes and allows the possession and purchase of slaves from abroad to a nation itself just released, just released from slavery. Again, he's kind of quote, citing the question, but not with a question mark. So what's, what's the deal with uh, Torah allowing slavery, allowing a people who were just freed from slavery to have slaves themselves? So he says that to understand this, you need to understand the circumstances. Here we go. No Jew, and this is uh, really important, no Jew could make any other human being into a slave. He could only acquire by purchase people who by then universally accepted international law were already slaves. But this transference into the property of a Jew was the one and only salvation for anybody who, according to the prevailing laws of the nations, was stamped as a slave. And this I need to elaborate on. What Rabbi Hirsch is saying is that a Jew, Torah does not allow a Jew to make a slave. It only allows for the purchase of a slave from other nations for the express purpose. He just wrote this, but it, you have to read into it a little bit. For the express purpose of essentially benefiting 
the individual who was branded a slave and tortured and, and, and dehumanized by others. Because in Judaism, if you have a slave, there are extreme, um, uh, there's extreme sensitivity and extreme care that one has to afford to their quote-unquote slave. It's not at all like the slavery that, uh, that you and I have, have heard about or, or know about and are uh, you know, abhorred by. Slavery in Judaism is not at all of that sort. And so in essence, the, 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 the allowance for Jewish slavery is to allow Jews to benefit, to help those who were abused by other nations to take them and to, to give them a better existence, a better life. Let me share with you the next text, text 10b. This is from another scholar. There are those who scoff at the Torah of Israel for its permitting the purchase of the Canaanite slave. But had those scoffers been wise, they would have understood that this purchase was only permitted regarding those who were sold to their brothers as slaves. The purpose was to save them from their Canaanite brothers who would work them cruelly and subjugate their bodies to the point of death. With this, we can understand the Talmudic law, that if a Jewish master sold a slave to an idolater, the master would be forced to buy him back at up to 10 times his market worth, write him a writ of uh, a manumission, manumission, and let him go. I think that means uh, freedom. Let's see what the Hebrew says. Um, yeah. Freedom, basically emancipation. The Torah of Israel did not permit even the servitude of a Canaanite without setting many strict limitations for the benefit of he who had been sold into lifelong bodily servitude, having fallen to the hands of his Canaanite brothers. This saved him from abusive domination of his body and soul and transferred him to the hands of Israel, who would treat him kindly and compassionately. So listen to this. And here's a documented fact. Look it up. There is no documented case in all of Jewish history of Jews mistreating slaves. Not once, not one instance, not one, not one recording in history of any people, of any individual, of any nation that Jews enslaved and abused and harmed, etc. never happened and never could happen. Why? Because in Jewish law, if you own a slave, you have to treat that person with dignity, with respect, with love and care and compassion. Yes, they might work for you, but you treat them with a high level of care and compassion. And this is the Torah's way of helping people, individuals who are enslaved in cruel conditions, to help move them out from that, pl that place and move them into a better place. I love how that rabbi, text 10b, um, how he calls the Canaanites consistently our brothers, right? Very different, very different way of treating others. But nonetheless, he affords even the Canaanites who would abuse people just to understand the sensitivity. He, afford, he, he, uh, he, he, uh, he uses a nice, a gentle term, uh, brothers. So even when he says, our brothers, oh, Vlad is asking the, the million-dollar question. I'm going to get to that in a question. So even when he's kind of criticizing others for, for, for harming others, right? So he makes it, uh, he calls them brothers. Again, this is the Jewish way, the gentle way. Vlad's asking the million-dollar, one second, Ray. Vlad's asking the million-dollar question. If the objective is compassion or humanity, so why not just 
free all the slaves. Good, good. Torah doesn't... Ray, one second, I hear your background. Let me mute you again. You can unmute in a second. Let me just finish, uh, let me just respond to, to Vlad's question. Again, the question is, why not, why doesn't the Torah say that it's a Jewish obligation to emancipate all the slaves in the world? Think about that. Think about that. It would be a mitzvah. Mitzvah is not a, a suggestion. A mitzvah is an obligation. So what would the mitzvah be? That you have to buy a slave and emancipate? That's a very tall order. It's a very tall obligation. Rather, the Torah says, look, if you want, you can spend your money and purchase a slave and then give them a better life. But to mandate that you have to purchase a slave and then free them, that's a very tall order. And, and Torah is speaking to human beings who, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, have some self-interest. So look, I, let me get, at least get a worker out of it. Not someone to abuse, God forbid, but at least someone who can, uh, can help out, you know, around. And they have to be fed and to be taken care of, etc. And, 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 and there's a time for emancipation for them to, to build their own family, as Torah describes, after a certain number of years, etc. Or under other conditions. But the point is that kind of the Torah works with us. The Torah, it's kind of like this. The Torah tells us what the ideal is. The ideal is, we know the ideal. Human beings, all human beings, created the divine image. Slavery is abhorrent. So that we know. So on our own, you and I should, should work to free everybody from horrific conditions. Okay, that doesn't need to be mandated. That should be self-understood, and we need to be working toward that. And, and we are. We have been. Jews and, and, and others alike. The Torah just says, if you buy a slave, you have to give them a better life. A life that's really not slavery. Give them a better life. Why doesn't the Torah say emancipate everyone? Again, that would be a very, um, a very difficult, I don't know, a very, um, uh, be a very hard obligation. Be a lot of money and a lot of work. But I, I, you know, at the same time, I think Torah does say that. Torah does tell us what, what we're meant to do. Just says, anyway, that's, that, that's, that's, a, that's a response. I don't know if it's the ultimate response or the best response, but that's a response to that very good question. Ray, you got a question. Um, all right, so what about Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery? Not a good thing. <laughs> what can I say? Not a good thing. I would say a terrible thing. I mean, look... I, I don't know that I need to pile on. I think, I think the, uh, the deeds of those brothers is well documented. And we know the result. We know the results then. I mean, it, it worked out for Joseph at the end, but, but such a thing, it's, 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 it's uh, very difficult to imagine. And we also know the effect that happened, you know, thousands of years later or a thousand years later, in the times of the Romans. Um, yes. Um, the times of the Romans... Um, where the Roman tyrant brought in the rabbis and he said to the rabbis, what's the Jewish law about human uh, trafficking, about um, kidnapping and, 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 and human sale, uh, selling a human being? And the answer is, um, it's, a, it's a capital punishment. Kidnapping is capital punishment. Kidnapping and, sell, and sale is, is, is a capital crime. So he says, so who, whoever meted out justice against the ten brothers who sold Joseph? 
And the rabbi said, uh, no one. And the tyrant said, well, I'm going to do it now. Since the times of those 10, uh, ten tribes, ten, 10 sons of, Joseph, of Jacob, there haven't been 10 great scholars like you guys. And he rounded up 10 scholars and he executed them brutally. We read it on two days. We read it on Yom Kippur and we read it on Tisha B'Av. Two days a year, we read the story of the 10 martyrs. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know that I need to, I don't know that I'm going to add anything to the, to, to the conversation about the, uh, the brothers selling uh, Joseph as a slave. It wasn't, it wasn't a good thing. <laughs> I'm not sure how, uh, what else to say. It, it wasn't cool. It wasn't kosher. It wasn't good. It wasn't, uh, wasn't a thing. Now, Adina Malka wrote in the chat that Joseph's perspective was he, he rose up. He rose above the fray. They did wrong, but he rose above, and that's why he was so successful. He said to them later on when they were begging him for forgiveness, he said, you never sold me as a slave. God sent me here on a mission. That was his choice to never assume a victim mentality. And that, by the way, is uh, we had Edith, Dr. Edith Eager, the Holocaust survivor and author of The Choice. At the core of her book is that idea. Choice. The choice. You and I have a choice. To be a victim or to not be a victim. In any case of trauma. Now, what's done physically, maybe we don't have a choice about. Right? But how we see it, how we interpret it, that is our choice. Joseph never saw himself as a victim. His brothers objectively kidnapped him, sold him as a slave. That's what happened. But the way he saw it is, he has been transported to Egypt uh, um, as, a, as, as a, uh, a messenger of God. And that's why no matter what position he was in, he always rose up and, and was able to accomplish amazing things. He was never stuck in a why me, you know, angry and bitter and, and, and never went to that place. It was a choice in his head. Um, okay, let's talk about, let's talk about, oh, by the way, we spoke about God being timeless above time. So, Vlad, getting back to your question, God wants us to get it right. But like we said before, also with choice, choice in time. God wants us to do it on our own, with our own choice, in our own time. God has all the time in the world. God's not like on the clock, right? God's timeless. God tells us what's right and wrong. Human beings, all human beings, in the divine image, create in the divine image. Every human being is godly. Slavery is abhorrent. That's what God told us. Now, it's up for us. It's up to us to walk the walk. God told us what to do. Now we have to walk. Nelson Mandela, my wife is from South Africa. She grew up in Johannesburg. She had the opportunity, the privilege as a young girl to meet Nelson Mandela. He was walking down the street in their neighborhood and she and a few friends were playing uh, in front of their house and they saw this very tall man. They saw Nelson Mandela walking down the street and they were like just overjoyed to see him. And there's even a picture of that encounter. Um, here's the point. Nelson Mandela wrote a book. I forget the exact title, but it's something along the lines of The Long March to Freedom. Something along those lines. Can somebody Google it and tell me the exact title? Nelson Mandela's book. Someone, someone Google it. We're all online now. I mean, if you're with me, you're online. So uh, no excuses. Someone tell me the title of the book. Yes, yes, slaves were freed after seven years. Um, yeah, Long Walk to Freedom. The Long, yeah, that's what I thought. The Long Walk to Freedom. I said March. The Long Walk to Freedom. And the message is, you know, in his own life, he was dedicated. 
no matter how many decades, how many years it would take, he would, he would make sure to break apartheid and, and, and end that, end that, uh, that, that cruelty. And indeed, and it came to pass in his lifetime. And I would say kind of, an, and we're still not there. We're still not perfect. <laughs> There's plenty of problems in the world. Plenty of oppression still happening today, right? Uh, on many different levels. We're not there yet. This is the long walk to freedom. This is God knows that it's going to take a while. God has patience. God has all the time in the world. God is timeless. We're meant to walk the walk. God is not going to force us. God's not going to, God's not going to change our hearts and make it to be that. We, we're meant to choose that way for ourselves, to be the mensch that we can be on our own and to treat each other with love. It's just a choice that we make. It, it's, it's you and I making that choice. So let's do it. All right, next question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this very, very quickly because we have about eight minutes and we have like three or four questions left, but don't worry, you're in good hands. We're gonna do the speed round. Next question, question number five is, why does Jewish law obsess over the details? And here's what I mean. I don't only mean the sheer number of mitzvot, 613 to be precise, and all their details, but I mean like the specifics of all of the mitzvot. For example, when it comes to tefillin, phylacteries, they have to be black, they have to be square, they have to be a certain size, they have to have a certain parchment. The letters have to be written in such a way. And it's like, are you kidding me? Can't they just, you know, symbolic, just, you know, just pop it on and whatever it is. Let me just meditate on it. Why do I need to do the details? A lulav, an esrog, a matzah, a shofar has to be exactly such and, and, and no deviation. The sounds have to sound like this and not like that. Why is the Torah, why is Judaism, why is maybe God obsessed about all the details? Mariana, welcome. Um, and I have a beautiful, a beautiful text that I want to share with you that I think you'll appreciate. Um, text 13. This is from a question and answer uh, dialogue. Question, why does the Jewish religion seem to obsess over insignificant details? How much matzah do we have to eat? Which spoon I, did I use for milk and which for meat? Which is the right way to tie my shoelaces? By the way, that is a thing in Jewish law. It seems to me that this misses the bigger picture by focusing on, on, on minutia. Is this nitpicking what Jews call spirituality? And then the writer writes the following. I actually already sent you this question over a week ago and I didn't receive a reply. Could it be that you've finally been asked a question that you can't answer? This is from a question and answer column. The answer. I never claim to have all the answers. There are many questions that are beyond me, but it happens to be that I did answer your question and that you did get the answer. I sent the reply immediately. The fact that you didn't receive it is itself the answer to your question. You see, I sent you a reply, but I wrote your email address, leaving out the dot before the com. I figured that you should still receive the email because after all, it's only one little dot missing. I mean, come on. It's not as if I wrote the wrong name or something drastic like that. Would anyone be so nitpicky as to differentiate between Yahoo.com and Yahoo.com? Isn't it a bit ridiculous that you didn't get my email just because of a little dot? You can see where this is going, right? <laughs> um, no, it's not ridiculous because the dot is not just a dot. It represents something. The dot has meaning far beyond the pixels on the screen that form it. To me, it may seem insignificant, but that is simply due to my ignorance of the ways of the internet. I love that, the ways of the internet. All I know is that with the dot, the message gets the right destination. Without it, the message is lost to oblivion. Jewish practices has, have infinite depth. Each nuance and detail contains a world of symbolism and every dot counts. So our question is, why is Jewish law, why is Judaism so detailed? Because the details, my friends, the details matter. Okay, 
Let's get to, oh, we have, so we have some good questions, some juicy questions coming up. Let's get to some other questions. Question number six, why is it permitted to have sexual relations on Shabbat? Let me explain the question. You might be wondering, why is that even a question? Here we go. Jewish law says there are certain things, in fact, 39 categories of work that are prohibited on Shabbat. And one of them is planting. One of them is planting, you know, when it comes to owning a field or having a field, planting a seed which could then grow into something else. So in Jewish law, we know that the categories, 39 categories of work that are prohibited on Shabbat have many subcategories and many branches from the main category that are not exactly, you know, the original, but are derivations or similar to the original category. Well, it would seem that intimacy, which could lead to procreation, might be similar to, again, I, I don't mean to, you know, to, to make it too coarse, but might be similar to the prohibition against Zorea, which is planting. Why not? In fact, we had a recent course looking on the screen. No, I think the person who asked this question in our, in our recent course, we taught a course called Judaism at Home a month, a few months ago. And somebody in that course, when we spoke about Shabbat, somebody, somebody and 39 categories, uh, we spoke about this, uh, we, we spoke about these categories and we mentioned planting and somebody asked, what about intimacy? What about uh, sexual relations on Shabbat? What if it leads to pregnancy? Is that not, uh, you know, creating life and spawning growth? And it's happening on Shabbat. It's starting to happen on Shabbat. That seems to be off limits. Or it should be off limits based on the prohibition against Zorea planting. It's a good question. It's a question that the commentators ask. Now, you might say, well, what, hold on. What kind of ridiculous question is that? Uh, planting is planting, and it's, it's an agricultural thing, and this is something else between two people. What, what are you, why are you mixing concepts? It's ludicrous. The question doesn't make sense. Not so fast. Take a look. I'm going to share my screen with you, and let's do a few texts together. Uh, let's skip this. Rabbi Mecklenburg. This is one of the great analyses of the Shabbat prohibitions. Take a look. Know that there is a difference between the word avodah, which means work, and the word malacha, which also means work. Avodah, malacha is prohibited on Shabbat, not avodah. Why? Avodah refers to actions that do not require knowledge or wisdom and where nothing is being changed or fixed by the action. Examples include carrying loads of stones, running from place to place, carrying the clothing of one's master to the bathhouse, dressing him, or any similar work of a slave. These tasks are associated with the word avodah and evet. The term malacha applies, and this is what's prohibited on Shabbat, the term malacha applies when someone creates something new from raw materials, changing it from its previous state and improving it. Whether building or destroying, in order to rebuild, there must always be a change. When a person's work makes the world more habitable, it is called malacha. Therefore, malacha includes erasing with the intention to rewrite or demolishing with the intention to rebuild. Every malacha requires learning and knowledge to know when it should be performed and with what implement. Essentially, what's prohibited on Shabbat are all forms of malacha, all forms of work that change something in the natural environment. And I ask you the question, is creating life a change? And the answer is absolutely. So therefore, based on this premise that, all the, that, that what's prohibited on Shabbat are the things that create change in the world. We're not meant to change the world on Shabbat. We're meant to enjoy it as it is. We're meant to sit back and receive the world, not change it. Six days a week, we change, change, change. We do the work. The seventh day, we rest. So why procreate potentially on Shabbat? 
The answer is, we have the answer in that text. Text forms the question and the answer because he says that Malacha on Shabbat requires knowledge and intelligence. It requires, I'll share my screen with you again to highlight the, the relevant text. He said before, and I'll, I'll uh, kind of move my, my hand, my virtual hand over it. He says, Avodar. Uh, yeah, right here. Every malacha prohibited Shabbat work requires learning and knowledge to know when it should be performed and with what implement. In other words, requires um, skill and training. And the reality is our sages tell us that, or I don't think you need our sages to tell us this, but they point out that the act of procreation is not something that is unique to human intelligence. It's something that all animals figure out. So it doesn't require any specific, you know, intelligence or skill. It's something that is more natural and biological. And therefore, therefore, it is not considered malacha. It's not considered prohibited work on Shabbat. Anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's regarding this question. So again, because it's not unique to human intelligence as opposed to farming, which is unique to human intelligence, I've never seen animals farm. I know there's something called animal farm, but I've never seen animals farm. I've seen the far side. Remember the far side? Those comics, those cartoons? Yeah, remember the far side? I love the far side. So the animals are always watching the humans. It's always like flipping things around. Fine, but in our world, I've never seen you know, a bunch of goats plow a field and lay down the seeds and, and cultivate it. Never happened. But have animals procreated? Yeah. So there you go. It doesn't require unique human intelligence. Therefore, it's not malacha. Therefore, it's not prohibited on Shabbat. And therefore, it's available. By the way, there is even, on, uh, even more so, there is a, a special mitzvah on, on Shabbat to engage in, in intimacy Friday night. It's considered to be uh, a very appropriate time. So it's not, it's not prohibited. On the contrary, it is, uh, it's, it's, it's a mitzvah. Which leads us to the next question. And the next question is, and I know we are up. Oh, okay, give me, give me another two minutes and then we're going to close it out. But I want to make sure to get this question. Um, the question is, why in the Torah, why does the Bible refer to sexual relations as knowing? It says in the Torah, text 17a, Adam knew Chava, his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. What does it mean that he knew his wife? What, they were sitting down and, and having coffee and schmoozing and he was getting to know, you know her background? Oh, oh, so you come from my side. Oh, I didn't know that. Right, so they're schmoozing and, and then she gets pregnant? Is that how it works? Uh, I think there's a bit of a, I think there's a step missing here. So in Torah, the word knew or know, yada, uh, is a euphemism for sexual relations. The question is why? What's the connection between knowing and intimacy? So let's take a look at text 17b. This is uh, the Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. He says, when the Torah uses the word knew to refer to sexual intercourse, it means that the man knew the woman, namely that she was his wife, not just any person. Indeed, the verse says, Adam knew Chava, his wife. He had intercourse with her because he knew her as his wife, not merely because she was a human female. This is unlike an ox that mates with a cow merely because it is of, its, of the opposite gender and of the same species. Adam knew the specific woman because she was designated to him alone, which means... It's a beautiful message here that intimacy should be connected. Physical intimacy should be connected with knowing the person. In Judaism, 
It should be connected with knowing and having a relationship with the person. So call it old-fashioned values. I know this is an anti-Tinder approach, but nonetheless, it is what it is. Torah believes, listen, Torah's old school, man. It's like, it's, it's the original. It's OG. It's, it's, it's old school, old school values. And the Torah tells us that what is intimacy? It's knowing, it's connecting. Real intimacy is connection. It's not just sex. It's not just a biological act. It's intimacy. So Adam didn't just have a biological action with his wife. He knew her. And part of knowing her is intimacy. But intimacy is intimacy. That's why I'm using the word intimacy, not just uh, you know, as a euphemism, but intimacy means implies a, a closeness. It's an intimate connection, not just a physical connection, but an intimate connection. And that is the, uh, the significance of knowing. All right, give me 45 seconds. Is vegan always kosher? The answer is no. I mentioned this at a, at a, I don't know when I mentioned this, but at some point I mentioned this. Um, foods are processed in America today and really around the world. And it's hard to know what the machinery, what the, the manufacturing plants are using or what ran on the line right before this item. Food that's processed is therefore not automatically kosher. The assumption is that it might not be kosher because of what ran before it. And even though machines are cleaned, they're not cleaned to the specifications of Jewish law, which require something, for example, to machinery to be boiled, uh, to be cleaned to the point of boiling, which is 212 degrees. And, and machinery in, in, in today, U.S., uh, Whatever, the uh, food, the FDA, Food and Drug Administration or whatever, the FDA does not mandate that level of, uh, of cleanliness, but Jewish law does. So if something is processed, it's not automatically kosher, even if the, it seems kosher. Second of all, when it comes to, to fruits and vegetables, if there's a potential for bugs, then it must be checked by hand under the light and washed and rinsed to make sure there are no bugs. I want to show you something very quickly. I know I'm being uh, generous with my time here. I'm very well aware. But FDA defect levels handbook. Broccoli frozen is allowed to have an average of 60 or more aphids and orthripes and or mites per 100 grams. This is what's allowed to be kosher according to the FDA. Um, insect filth, insects with asparagus, Brussels sprouts, insects. There is a threshold um, under which it's acceptable. Corn with insect larvae, berries, and citrus fruit, etc. I mean, you can look it up for yourself. It's all available. All of these things are available online. You can look it up. But basically, these things, these amount of bugs are kosher, according to the FDA, but not kosher. Not even the most minute uh, amount is kosher in Jewish law. Therefore, in a, in a kosher restaurant, if you go behind into the kitchen in a kosher restaurant, if it's kosher, not vegan, if it's kosher, you will see a rabbi or somebody you know that's a, a kosher individual who is standing back there in the kitchen, examining every single leaf of lettuce and checking and eliminating all the bugs and making sure everything that comes out of the kitchen is bug-free. That's a major work in a kosher restaurant. And in a vegan restaurant, it's just, it's not up to that level of scrutiny. Now, if you want to take a, a salad from your vegan restaurant and, and start checking every piece, it might be difficult once it's chopped up and it might be impossible, but you know, maybe. But the point is that vegan is not automatically kosher. Um, finally, why do we say l'chaim? The answer is, this is the final question, the answer is because all too, too often in, in, in history, 
um, the drinking of L'chaim led to negative circumstances. Adam and Eve, according to one tradition, drank wine and then sinned. Uh, or Sorry, the, the, the tree of knowledge was actually a vineyard and they drank the wine from it. And that was their, their sin. Um, Noah uh, got... got um, negative uh, uh, incident with wine. He got drunk and, and debased himself. Lot, also Abraham's nephew, got debased with wine. The bottom line is um, some mishaps happened and have happened, continue to have happened with L'chaim. So number one, you don't have to drink L'chaim. Number two, if you do drink something, it has to be with the intention that it should be L'chaim only for life and not for anything negative. And of course, um, in a responsible fashion. So that's a little bit of insight into the toast, l'chaim, we don't drink without saying l'chaim, to remind us that this should be a healthy experience and not in any way a negative experience, which is something that every human being needs to be careful about. All right, that's it. I think we got through all nine questions. It took me a little bit longer than the time that we've had. Thank you for staying with me. I appreciate it. Um, Join me next week, same bat time, whoops, same bat channel. Next week, we are going to look at holidays, food, clothing, the chicken and egg dilemma, and much, much more. Um, I want to mention that we have our annual dinner coming up. We have a very unique concept. We are going to have a catered dinner brought to your house on the day of the dinner. You will have a catered dinner delivered to your house, and then we have an online program. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, every year we have a celebration of Jewish life and learning in town Jewish Academy, celebrating Torah study and Judaism in general and Jewish inspiration. It's a very inspiring program. We have this year a cantor. It's going to be an online virtual program, a live cantor from South Africa. We have our keynote address a rabbi and scholar from England will be speaking. So we have a, an international all-star uh, um, uh, group of uh, 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 lineup for the actual dinner program, plus locally catered dinner brought, delivered to your house. Join us, and of course, the proceeds help um, support Jewish learning, adult Jewish education uh, that we do here at Intown Jewish Academy in Atlanta and beyond. So please join us for that. More information can be found on intownjewishacademy.org. Look for the gala dinner information. All right, that's all the news that's fit to print. Thank you again. I'll stay on for the next few minutes or so in case anybody has questions. Otherwise, Lila Tov, it's great to see you. Any questions? Any questions?